just heard wonderful Christmas music by uh, Dr. Don Watson, and this is time for sing together and make a great, beautiful noise to the Lord. Let us all stand up and sing the first Noel.
thank you so much and welcome to chapel this morning it's great to be with god's people uh, and worship before the lord wonderful to be able to sing those christmas carols isn't it we can't do that very much anymore and that's a shame so we're doing it here well this morning we need to pray especially for becca babbler she's john babbler's uh, daughter she had very serious surgery yesterday but came through it fine gonna have some days of uh, of pain and some therapy to get up and get going again and so we want to pray for her especially many others who need our prayers also let's ask God to uh, be available to the needs of every single person who is in in need of help today let's go to the Lord in prayer Heavenly Father how we thank you for this wonderful day we thank you for the season of the year when we remember the incarnation of our Lord we thank you Father for the wonderful blessings of God that have come upon our seminary and upon everything that we seek to do for you. Thank you, Lord, and make us good stewards of it. Lord, we do pray for Becca Babbler today, and we pray for all of those who need the hand of the Lord in their lives today, that they may receive healing where that is appropriate, and Lord, that in every case they may sense the power and the presence of God available to them at this time. And Father, today as we come to open the word of God and listen to God's messenger, I pray for your special anointing upon the one who is to be our speaker today. And Lord, we thank you so much for him and that you brought him to our school. But Lord, today as he preaches, may he have the anointing of God upon him. And so Father, bless our time together today. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you and you may be seated. Now, this is a very special chapel today because uh, we have uh, some uh, graduation to take place here from our women's certificate program. And so it is my great joy uh, to introduce to you our Dean of Women who is going to come at this time. And I'm gonna come down there also and uh, we're going to present these certificates to these ladies. Now, these are, um, am I correct to say that they are mostly wives of students? All wives of students, that's what I thought. And so the wonderful thing you're seeing today is these ladies have made themselves aware of all they need to know theologically to correct their husbands when they make serious mistakes. Amen and amen. Ladies, not only do you graduate today, but you have an assignment on your hand. It will help keep your husband humble, and at the same time, it will help him to be better instructed in the way of the Lord. So uh, thank you so much for being here and doing this today. Come on, please. Well, these ladies are a reflection of Southwestern's commitment to providing theological education to women at all levels of study, from doctoral study, masters, and baccalaureate concentrations to the certificate level. And today we recognize those who've completed the certificate level. The seminary studies for student wives certificate prepares student wives to be prayerful and passionate partners with their husbands in ministry. So I want to say especially a thank you to the family and friends, especially the husbands who encourage them to do this and to continue to equip themselves to best be used by God. So as I call each name, I invite friends and family members who are here to invited to stand in their support. I do ask that we refrain from applause until the end and we'll all join together to congratulate their achievement. So earning the seminary stage for student wives certificate, Antonia 
Ajaboye. Al Alini Marianne Montero Cha. Myungja Han. Mary Jepkoske Kipchilis. Osede Alawunmi Olabisi. Crystal Lynn Tucker. Join me in congratulating these ladies on their achievements. very much, Dr. Stovall, and, and especially ladies for uh, doing this work and uh, preparing uh, for the future of the ministry where God will use you so greatly also. Now, in uh, just a moment, uh, we're going to have the reading of God's Word. We're moving along in the book of Acts, and, uh, and uh, Zer Sergao, I think I got that right. Uh, who is uh, finishing in just a few days with his uh, uh, baccalaureate degree. Uh, he is from the state of California. Isn't that wonderful that Californians come here? That's good. And so he's going to come and read God's word for us as we continue reading through the book of Acts. And then uh, we're going to sing, O Come All Ye Faithful. And then Drew Benson today is going to come. Now, I know that uh, when I announced to you that he's going to do a uh, piece from the Messiah, that most of you say, oh, no. But you're ever going to be surprised, first of all. But number two, you need this. This is a very historic connection of the church of the living God. You don't want to be totally ignorant of these things. And so I know you can't do it. I certainly couldn't. I heard him rehearsing in here. It was most remarkable, but I couldn't do it. But thank God he can. And so you listen as Drew Benson comes to sing, Comfort ye my people, and every valley shall be exalted. And then uh, after that, we're delighted to be able to present to you today Dr. Barry McCarty. You've already gotten to know him probably because he's very faithful in chapter and chapel, as of course all our professors are. <clears throat> and uh, we are grateful for uh, not only that, but for the tremendous contribution that he has made. Now, Pat's not here today, is she? Okay, he's married to Pat. They have three children, Ryan, Noah, and Ian. And uh, the that doesn't really make much difference to him. What makes a difference to him is that he's a brand new grandfather to a precious little baby boy, and he's excited about that. But of course then, Dr. McCarty's excited about everything, and so that's okay too. Um, he holds a Master of Arts degree from Abilene Christian University, and his PhD uh, in uh, rhetoric is from the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, has uh, matter of his uh, work with the Lord. Uh, he has served as president of Cincinnati Christian University and as a senior pastor for about 22 years. He has been a professor in several different institutions and he is serving from 1986 until now as our chief parliamentarian for the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, when I heard that there might be an opportunity for him to consider coming here, I contacted him and said, Dr. McCarty, God has spoken very clearly to me. 
and he said something about the fact that God needed to speak to him. And so we arranged that, and God spoke clearly to him also. And so uh, through that uh, sequence of events, we are most grateful to have him here teaching with us now, both in the college and in our school of preaching. Well, uh, he has written a number of books, uh, Parables and Miracles, uh, uh, well Said and Worth Saying, A Public Speaking Guide for Church Leaders and Parliamentary Guide for Church Leaders. All of that he has done. Let me tell you what, he loves to spend his summer vacation riding in the mountains of France on his bicycle. And uh, so he is a good athlete and a fine man, and I am so grateful to God to have him here. And I want you to listen to him today with open heart because he has a very important text that he's going to point you to and point me to as he challenges us today in the word of the Lord. All right, so this is our program, and uh, sir, would you come and read God's word for us now? If you are willing and able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders. And hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground. And the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the forces of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the, the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island, named Publaris, who welcomed us and entered us, entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publaris was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And P Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. 
They also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word.
The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a Every 
Good morning, Swibitz family. It's good to be here with you today. I, I have to say before I begin that Dr. Patterson only told you part of the story of my coming to uh, Southwestern Seminary in between the time that the Lord spoke to him and told him that he needed him to extend a call to me. In between that time and the Lord speaking to me, and telling me that I needed to accept that call, he failed to mention that Mrs. Patterson had a conversation with me. <laughs> and after talking with Mrs. Patterson, it became much clearer that the Lord was speaking to me to come to Southwestern. They are dear and precious friends. They've been so for three decades, and so to serve under their leadership and uh, alongside them here at Southwestern with all of you is a great blessing to me. I am so excited about our passage of scripture today. I'll go ahead and tell you that our actual text that we're going to dig into to is only a single verse, John 20 and verse 31. But we want to read what happens just before that verse. It's the epilogue to John's gospel. And we want to read about something that happened just before John records this epilogue because it makes it even more clear. So if you are able to stand, would you please stand as we read from John's gospel, the word of the Lord from the gospel of John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. 
and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Until 2009, 73-year-old Jonathan Goldsmith had been a longtime journeyman actor. Uh, he hadn't had much of a career, uh, though, as an actor. But now he is so big that recently Michael Jordan asked to have his picture taken with him. Jonathan Goldsmith plays the most interesting man in the world. The James Bond meets Ernest Hemingway character in the Dos Equis beer commercials. The ads show the bearded, debonair gentleman in usually grainy black and white film montages of his accomplishing daring exploits, usually when he was younger. He performs such ultra-cool feats as freeing an angry bear from a bear trap winning an arm wrestling match in a dark bar in South America or catching a giant marlin. And during these montages, there's a narrator that intones one-liners about the most interesting man of the world, things like he's won trophies for his game face alone. There's one scene, I really like this one, it's set in Pamplona, Spain, and the character he plays is not running with the bulls but against them. And uh, as one ad says, if he were to pat you on the back, you would list it on your resume. <laughs> and then, then always this line, he is the most interesting man in the world. And the ad always ends with this line where he looks into the, into the camera and he says, I don't always drink beer, but help me out here. When I do, I drink Dos Equis. Well, the campaign has been wildly successful. Dos Equis has gone from this never heard of little imported beer that had a tiny share of the market. They're now the sixth largest imported beer sold in America. But there's something wrong with this picture. Well, in addition to the fact that they're selling beer, <laughs> there's something wrong with this picture. And that is that the title of the most interesting man in the world does not belong to the Dos Equis man. That title belongs to another man, a man who lived in Palestine in the days of the Roman Empire. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's the subject of the most amazing story ever told or written. John here at the end of his gospel, when he comes to the close of the gospel, John writes this short two-verse epilogue in chapter 20 and verses 31 and uh, 30 and 31 where he sums up the gospel. 
And my friends, this morning, what I want to commit, I want to commend especially verse 31 to you. Because in that verse is the whole of the gospel summarized. All the great doctrines of the Christian faith can be found in the simple eight-word declaration, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the whole gospel right there. And John writes for us all of the blessings and benefits that flow out of that. And so this morning, we want to take a look at the most amazing story ever told, and it centers on the most amazing man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the most amazing man who ever lived. Now, uh, this story has a proposition at the middle of it, and let me just pause for a moment and give you a footnote. For those of you who are fans of the new homiletic, who think that propositional preaching is passe and disparage propositional preaching, my dear friends, I'd point out to you that when John summarizes his gospel, there's a proposition right smack in the middle of it. And so biblical preaching is propositional preaching because in case you haven't noticed through your logic and language courses, that's a proposition. Jesus, there's a subject, is, there's your copula, the Christ, the Son of God. There's what's predicated of your subject. Biblical preaching is propositional preaching. By the way, if you ever want to refute that, uh, I dare you to attempt it without using a proposition. Go ahead, make my day. <laughs> Try it. Oh, you could sing me a little song about how the days of propositional preaching are over. You could paint a little painting, an abstract painting that nobody would know what you were saying in it. But you couldn't refute the argument that biblical preaching is propositional preaching unless you proffered a counter-proposition. All right, that's, we're done with the footnote. Let's get on with the sermon. That's the proposition that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in this verse, the main clause of the verse is these things are written. And then John has two little they're not little. Well, they're short, but there are two hena clauses in there. For you Greek students, you know that hena is a purpose indicator. And John has two purposes in writing his gospel. The first is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the second purpose is that believing you may have life in his name. So we're going to talk about those two things. First of all, let's talk about that first thing. The most amazing man in this story, Jesus Christ. John puts that statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In, Greek, in the Greek text, that proposition is in the indicative mood. And the indicative mood is the grammatical mood that a writer uses to describe an action or a state of being that is real. And so John here, when he makes that simple proposition in the indicative mood, he's saying, listen, the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that is a fact. That's indicative. That's something that is real. It's not in the interrogative mood. It's not, well, I wonder if this fellow Jesus might be the Christ. It's not in the subjunctive mood. Well, maybe, just perhaps this fellow Jesus just might be the Christ. It's in the indicative it's a statement of fact. It's a statement of what is real. It's a statement of what is solid. 
And it's a present active indicative so that it's true the moment that John uttered it. It is true for all time and all eternity forever and ever and ever. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Whether you believe it, whether I believe it, whether anybody believes it, it is the truth. Can you hear the ancient voice of the Apostle John? Can you hear him saying that down through the ages? Can you hear his voice that at the center of the gospel, the center of all wisdom and knowledge, at the center of the deepest understanding of the most fundamental reality in the universe is this simple eight-word proposition, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, let's take our first half of our time together today. Let's talk about what that means. Four things. First of all, Jesus is called the Christ. And as soon as you have called him the Christ, the Messiah, immediately we begin to think of those three anointed offices in the Old Testament, all of which foreshadowed and foretold the coming of the Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, there were three kinds of people who were anointed or who were uh, set apart for their offices through anointing oil. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. A prophet is a messenger from God, someone who has a word from God. And you can find in the Old Testament places where the prophets were said to be anointed. Priests, especially the high priest, were also anointed offices. A priest is someone who mediates between sinners and God through sacrifice. And then finally, Remember that touching story of the prophet Samuel anointing first Saul and then David as king? Kings were anointed offices. And so when you refer to Jesus Christ as the anointed one, it reflects back, it, it, it shows the, that he is the fulfillment of those three anointed offices of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is first of all the perfect prophet because he is the ultimate messenger from God. The book of Hebrews opened it this way, as uh, my dean David Allen would rightly notes in his commentary that long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And John himself would open his gospel with this very colorful but apt metaphor for Jesus. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. In other words, Jesus Christ is the perfect prophet because he's what God has to say to the world. But to call Jesus the Christ also means that he is a priest. Not just a priest, he becomes the perfect high priest. Remember, a priest is someone who mediates between sinners and God through sacrifice, and Jesus becomes the absolute perfect high priest for us. He's perfect, first of all, because, well, he was perfect. He didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. On the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, it was a great day. The high priest offered sin, uh, sacrifices for the sins of all the people on the Day of Atonement. Actually, it was the, the only day that the high priest personally offered sacrifices for the people. And on that great day, though, the first thing that the high priest had to do was that he had to offer sacrifices first for his own sins before he could then offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. 
the high priest would go and he would wash his hands very carefully, would wash his feet. He would remove his high priest robe and clothe himself in a clean white linen robe. And then there was brought to him a bull that he had purchased with his own money. He would lay both of his hands on the head of the bull and there he would confess his sins, slay the bull, and it would be sacrificed for his sins. And thus the greatest of all the Levitical sacrifices in the lives of the Jews began with a sacrifice for the sins of the high priest. My dear friends, Jesus is your perfect high priest because that was a sacrifice that he never needed to make. For he was the only one without sin. And thus he could be your high priest because he's a perfect high priest. Not only because he's the sinless son of God, but uh, he's also fully human with you, yet without sin. Jesus was not only the perfect high priest, but we discover from the gospel of John that he offered the perfect sacrifice himself. He became the sacrifice. John saw it. I'm sure he had it in mind at the end of his gospel, the day that he stood on that wind-swept hillside outside of Jerusalem and looked up onto the hard wood of that cross and watched the Savior bleed for the sins of the world. He saw his side pierced with a Roman spear and knew this, this is the perfect sacrifice. But Jesus is the perfect high priest offering the perfect sacrifices, and here's the best news. He's still alive, and he is still mediating for you in heaven right now. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 would put it this way, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Four times the book of Hebrews says, Once for all, Jesus offered the sacrifice that was needed. In other words, once he's done, once the perfect high priest has offered the perfect sacrifice, he's done. And now in heaven, he simply reminds, simply reminds the Father of what he did for us. Oh, listen, today, right now, if you are a believer, there will be times when you are tempted and weak. And there will be times when you stumble and sin. But listen, my friends, there will never be a time when you are lost. Because there'll never come a time when your high priest, Jesus Christ, the supreme advocate and intercessor, ceases to plead your case before God. And just as, just as the only condition for being saved is trusting in the saving power of Christ, so only the only condition for staying saved is trusting in the saving power of Christ. The security of the sheep doesn't depend on the ability of the sheep. It depends on the power of the Savior. And no one, Jesus said, can snatch his sheep from out of the Father's hand. And so Jesus Christ, when we call him the Christ, he's the perfect prophet, he's the perfect priest, and finally, he's the perfect king. Jesus is the Christ because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, according to his human descent through Mary, Jesus was a descendant of David, and he sat on David's throne. But spiritually, he was even more than that. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. At his first coming, Jesus 
began to establish his kingdom and began his conquest of evil. Throughout his earthly ministry, Satan retreated as the kingdom of God advanced. And a lot of the things that Jesus did, a lot of his miracles were actually reflections of the establishment of his kingdom. The casting out of demons, the healing of disease, the taming of nature. All of these were signs that Jesus had come to reverse all the effects of the fall and establish his righteous reign and rule over his own creation. But listen, at his second coming, oh yes, bring that on because that will complete his conquest of evil and the establishment of his kingdom. This morning I so appreciated hearing uh, a selection from Handel's Messiah. And let me tell you something, Brother Handel knew the gospel. When he wrote the Messiah, Handel understood the gospel. And I love hearing the Handel's Messiah at this time of the year because frankly, much of what passes for news this, these days is not very encouraging. I don't think the majority of our current politicians or potential politicians who lead our nation, I don't know that they have enough wisdom, morals, or courage to do the right thing. I don't think the majority of people who vote them into office either know or care a lot about doing the right thing. So when you look around us, it's easy for a thoughtful person to think that the other side, the devil's side, is winning, but that's not true. They may, from time to time, only temporarily be ahead in the part of the battle that is most visible to us. But my friends, the message of the gospel and the message of the New Testament is that this world, when it comes to an end, will end in the complete and unconditional victory of Jesus Christ and his church over the devil and his followers. And Handel understood that. You know how I know Handel understood that? Listen to the oratorio that Handel wrote. Just prior to that great hallelujah chorus, there's a bass recitative that's taken from Psalm 2 that says, Why, why do the nations so furiously rage together? The kings of the earth rise up and take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Turn on the nightly news. You can watch that all day long. That happens still. But that bass recitative is followed by this staccato chorus that they all burst in and say, let us break their bonds asunder. And then a tenor weighs in and says, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Then Handel hits us with the great hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords forever. Hallelujah. In other words, there's coming a day when the Lord's going to show up and he's going to bust some heads. So get ready for it. He's going to set some things right. This is amazing. All of this from just one word, the Christ. Because he is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. But then John reveals one more thing about Jesus. 
He says at the end of that proposition that Jesus is the Christ, and he adds this phrase, the Son of God. And all of a sudden, well, John and the other disciples, they understood early on that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. John says that in the first chapter of his gospel. He and Andrew discovered Jesus, and they go to their family, their, their brothers, and they say, well, we have found the Christ. And so they understood early on that he was the Christ. But as Jesus' ministry progresses, they begin to see more and more that the Christ was not going to be just a superhuman Messiah, but that he was actually God in the flesh. Years ago, in the beginning of television, there used to be a show that a man named Art Linkletter had on called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And in one of the episodes, Art Linkletter sits down beside this little boy and uh, he says, what are you drawing? And the little boy is working away. He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And Art Linkletter chuckles. He said, well, well, son said, nobody knows what God looks like. The little boy looks up company and says, they will when I get through. What we discover when we read the gospel is that when we get through with the story of the gospel, we know what God looks like. I don't know if your family does this, but I, I'm connected to a lot of friends around the country that each year I love to get their Christmas letters because they tell us about what our friends have been doing through the year. And I love the Christmas letters that have a family, a current family photo in them. I love to get those. And in a sense... A very real sense the Bible is God's Christmas letter to you and when Jesus walked onto this earth God sent you a picture of himself John begins his gospel by saying in the beginning was was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we've seen his glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We just began the season of Advent this past Sunday, and Christmas is coming shortly. And many of us will be singing that great Christmas hymn by Charles Wesley that has the line, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sings, glory to the newborn king. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, my dear friends, is the core of the gospel. Understand that, and everything else opens to you. Misunderstand that, and you'll understand nothing. That is the core of the gospel. But you know, Jesus himself stood in the temple and said, before Abraham was born, I am you can read that in John 8 and see the reaction that he got from the Jewish leaders. Jesus himself plopped God's business card down in front of the Jewish nation. That's God's business card. When God introduced himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Moses said, when I go to Egypt to get your people, who do I say, whom do I say has sent me? God said, tell them I am has sent you. That's the coolest business card in the universe. Name, title, address, everything in those two words. Name, I am. Title, I am. Address, 
He's everywhere, so just start talking. You don't need a phone number, fax number. You don't need his Facebook page. Just start talking. Wherever you are, he is, and he's listening. And Jesus himself stood up in the middle of John's gospel and said, I am. All right, those are the four things that about Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What does it mean for you? That's our second purpose clause. The first reason that John wrote was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the second reason he wrote, that second little Hena clause says, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, that's John's shorthand for summing up all the blessings of the gospel. Oh, my goodness, but the blessings of the gospel are all over the gospel of John. Let's just talk about three of them quickly here. First of all, trusting Christ secures your forgiveness of all of your sins and restores you to relationship with God. That's what John says when he tells the story between Jesus and Nicodemus back in John 3. The most famous verse, not only in the gospel of John, but the whole Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that one little verse right there solves the greatest problem you have. You know what your greatest problem is? Your greatest problem, my greatest problem, everyone's greatest problem is that we are sinners who are estranged from our Father. Years ago, in the mid-1980s, I was working for the governor of North Carolina. I was part of Governor Martin's administration. I was the chairman of the State Social Services Commission. And during that time, Governor Martin asked me to be part of a group of people who revised North Carolina's jail standards. Now, that's a whole other interesting story for another time. But in the course of that year that I was helping the governor revise the jail standards for North Carolina, I had an occasion to visit a lot of jails and also to visit the state prison in Raleigh, North Carolina, the state prison where North Carolina's death row existed. It was one of the most sobering things I've ever done. I remember walking down a long hallway, passing a line of cells as I looked into the faces of men who were awaiting execution, men who one day would walk that hall and would be dead men walking. At the end of that hall was the death chamber. It was a small room with metal walls. In the middle of that room, there was a medical gurney in the in the center where the condemned man would be strapped down while a lethal injection would first put him to sleep and then it would stop his heart. It was all very neat, very clean, and very modern, but it sent chills down my spine simply to be in that room. Once I saw it, didn't take me long to look at it, I had no desire to long remain in that room. Sometime after that, I had a dream, and I saw that same picture in my dream. It was very real to me because I could, in the dream, I was walking down the same hallway, walking into that, that just the way I had actually done it in real life. Everything in the dream was the same except my dream turned into a nightmare. For when I stepped into the room and stepped over close to the gurney, the guards reached down and hoisted me onto the table. And I laid down, and they strapped me to the table. 
And as someone began to put an IV needle in my arm, I looked down and saw that the sleeve of my arm that I was wearing, the prison blues that the men on death row had worn. And I woke up at that point. I'm glad I woke up at that point because I, I woke up in a cold sweat. Oh, oh, wow, what a relief. Oh, oh I'm so thankful. I, I am not a condemned criminal. Oh, I'm, I'm not about to be executed. As I went back to sleep, though, God began to work in my heart. And you, I don't know if the dream came from him or not, but as I went back to sleep, I remembered, oh, wait a minute. This story is true of me because I am a condemned sinner. A condemned sinner in a more real and a more important way than any of the men on North Carolina's death row. For I have rebelled against the just and rightful reign and rule of my Lord and King. And I've broken his holy laws and I've incurred his righteous wrath. And as John puts it in this short verse and, and others in John 3, I am condemned and I'm perishing. Oh, but thank God, just before I was executed, someone else stepped in and died in my place. And then my mind just raced back 2,000 years to a windswept hillside outside the city of Jerusalem and to the hard wood of a cross. And I stood there with John at the crucifixion and I looked up into the face of the one who took my place. And all of the white, hot wrath of a just and angry God burned itself out. Not on me, not on you, but on him. And Jesus did what you certainly don't want to do. And by trusting him, he stands in your place. July of 1994, there was a forest fire that raged near Glenwood Springs, Colorado. There was a team of firefighters that were battling that blaze. And as they did, the 50-mile-per-hour winds suddenly shifted and began to blow the fire back toward the firefighters. Two teams of firefighters quickly realized they could not un outrun the fire. Fourteen of them decided that they would quickly dig little trenches in the ground as they're trained to do and that they would cover themselves with their aluminum fire tents which were there just for that kind of of event but this particular fire was too hot and their thin aluminum fire tents could not stand the fury of the fire and those 14 firefighters died there was another group of firefighters close to them but off just a little bit 38 firefighters and they survived the fire because they too realized that they could not outrun this fire but instead they wet their uh, handkerchiefs and, and garments and wrapped them around their heads and these 38 firefighters as as awful as it sounds and as scary as it sounds they actually ran into the fire ran into the fire and through the fire line to the other side to the charred blackened earth where the fire had already been they escaped because they ran to the only safe place where the fire 
has already been. And my dear friends, that's the gospel. The gospel invites you to run. You who are subject to God's wrath and God's righteous condemnation, God invites you, Christ invites you to run to the charred earth around the cross where the fire has already been. It's the only safe place in the universe. Another thing that the gospel offers us is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 7, whoever believes in me as the scripture is said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. In other words, Jesus is prepared not only to instruct you how to live and to help you live, he's ready through the Holy Spirit to actually come and live in you and through you today. And then finally, Jesus is prepared to transform you at the end of the age. John says in his gospel, Jesus said to Mary, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You know, my greatest problem today is that I am rapidly becoming a decomposing corpse. Actually, so are you, everyone in the room. We are mortals who are in somewhere along the line. You're either at the beginning of it or in the middle of it or the end of it. But all of us are on the same continuum, continuum where we mortals are becoming rapidly decomposing corpses. Except those who through faith in Christ will one day be transformed. John would say in his little epistle... See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And then he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Forgiveness of sins comes to those who trust in Christ. The indwelling, life-giving power of the Holy Spirit comes to those who trust in Christ. And the promise of resurrection and transformation in the new heaven and the new earth comes to those who trust in Christ. Dear friends, that's the most amazing offer that you are ever going to receive on the most amazing terms. Simple trust in Christ, the most amazing man who ever lived. And all of this that John summarizes by these two little verses, all of this is the amazing story of the gospel. As you came in this morning, you received uh, via our friend uh, Dr. Tom Rayner at Lifeway Christian Resources, uh, he gave these to me to give to you today. Each one of you received one of these little New Testaments, Share Jesus Without Fear New Testament. It's a neat little New Testament. It shows you how to mark up the New Testament in order to use it to lead someone to the Lord just by asking a few questions and showing them the key verses. But here it is. It's in your hand. This is all the gospel you will ever need for you to be saved or for anyone to be saved. It's all here. It's a complete package right there. We are part of a family, part of a seminary whose motto is preach the word and reach the world. And this gospel is for you today. 
let me say to you this morning that if, and it's possible that you may be here enrolled in seminary and you yourself have been trusting in something other than simple faith in Jesus to save you. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family. Listen, that can make a good Christian. It can also make a pretty good Pharisee as well. I've wrestled with that all my life. I'm thankful for my Christian family, but it, it creates a breeding ground for good Pharisees as well as good Christians. Maybe your church membership is what you're trusting in. Maybe the fact that, well, I've, I was baptized the same time my whole, you know, eighth grade Sunday school class was baptized or uh, whatever it is. Maybe you've never had that moment where you've simply realized that Jesus did everything necessary for you to be saved. And it's simply a matter of trusting in him. If you've not yet done that, don't let this day pass without coming to talk to one of us. Any one of your professors, anyone here would be delighted to talk to you and work with you and counsel with you and pray with you. Don't let this semester, don't let this day, don't let this hour pass without trusting Christ alone. And then we're part of a seminary that says preach the word and reach the world. You and I have the wonderful joy, the inestimable privilege of taking this wonderful gospel we've talked about today, taking it to the whole world. And it's for everybody. It's for our neighbors and it's for the nations. It's for the Antandroy people of Madagascar. It's for the Zoe people of Northeast India and Burma. It's for the Bundeli people of India. It's for every person on the globe. And you and I aren't done until we've penetrated every jungle, every desert, every war zone, every square inch of space on this globe with the gospel. There it is. It's so simple. Believe it and share it. God bless you. Would you bow with me, please, for just a moment? I have seldom heard a clearer presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I am always mindful, in fact, that just because people are in seminary does not mean that they've been saved. Folks, if you have not had a moment when you know that you repented of your sin and placed your faith solely, completely in Jesus Christ, then you're not saved. And I just wonder today, in the closing moments here, if there's anybody here that would say, you know, God spoke to me through that message this morning. And I have come to the conclusion that I never actually did this business with Jesus. I never asked him into my life. And I want to do that right now. Would you just slip a hand high up in the air all over the chapel today? Today I'd like to receive Christ as my Savior anywhere. He deals with you, anybody. I'm wondering how many of you today, and this might be all of us, I don't know, but don't say it unless you believe it. How many of you would say to God, Dear Lord, 
in light of what we've heard today, we need to increase our faithfulness in sharing that gospel of Jesus Christ about which John wrote so beautifully. How many of you would say, I want to do that. I want God to use me in that special way. Would you just slip a hand toward heaven very quickly? Heavenly Father, you see that's most of us because, Lord, we are here because we care about the gospel. Lord, I pray right now for every one of us that we may, in the light of the word of God, which we have heard preached so effectively, redouble our efforts to live and work for Christ in the days that lie ahead. Thank you, Lord, for sending God's preacher to us today to bring God's message to us in this hour. In Jesus' holy name, we pray. Amen. Would you look this way, please, for just a moment? I need to just say a word of announcement to you about a couple of things. First of all, I want to thank uh, Dr. McCarty. Uh, now you know why I made that call to him and said, God's leading you here, and now you know why Ms. Patterson made an effective call to him to say, uh, God is leading you, but uh, what a blessing, what a tremendous blessing, how wonderfully well the whole Gospel of John was exegeted to us today. That's how you do it, folks. You learn to do it like that, illustrate it like that. God will bless you tremendously. Thank you, Barry McCarty thousand times over. He'll be here at the close uh, for you to talk with him and get acquainted with him if you have not already. Now, uh, you note the platform. Uh, there's a piano or two up here. Uh, and they're not there for you to look at, although they make a beautiful sight. Um, the institution owns all those Steinway pianos, thanks to some very generous people who made it possible for our music students to learn on the finest. And so we have a time each year when we have keyboards at Christmas. It's a Christmas program that is for everybody, and I hope you will bring your wife. If your wife has been uh, helping you get through school, she deserves a night like this. And you're a no-count sorry somebody if you don't bring your wife to it and uh, enable her to enjoy a night of wonderful Christmas music. May God have mercy on your soul. Now, if you are, by the same token, looking for a wife or a husband, uh, then you need to make this date night and... Uh, after hearing what they're going to hear, they'll be open to your proposal. And uh, so I hope you'll take advantage of it. Now, this afternoon uh, at 11.30 over uh, at Selig uh, Banquet Room, we have the Land Center Program, which is our own Dr. John Wilsey today. Dr. Wilsey's just written a wonderful book. I, I meant to bring it with me, and I got off without it. But uh, on the question of American exceptionalism and civil religion, and he's going to expound that a little bit for us over there today, and then we're going to ask him every difficult question we can think of, okay? And so it'll be a wonderful time over there together. Now, uh, Brother James Tisdale, would you come up here for just a moment with me, uh, if you will?
And while he's coming, remember that tomorrow, Dr. Jimmy Scroggins will be here. He is pastor of First Baptist Church, West Palm Beach, Florida, and a wonderful man of God. Uh, James Tisdall is a graduate of this institution. I got that right, don't yes, I? Yes, you did. Yeah, what, what year did you graduate? 66. 1966. I was just a baby back then. But uh, <laughs> God bless you, my brother. We're glad to have you here today. Uh, he drove all the way up here in order to do something very nice for you. I have in my hand a book that he has just published called One Generation Away from Paganism. And back at the back, as you go out tonight, uh, the first 200 of you that go by that table, this is yours for free. Now, what's so good about that is this is a good book. But more than that, you've got to have 1,500 to graduate, and most of those you have to buy. This one's free for you, so go buy and get this. Now, Brother Tisdale, what made you write a book entitled One Generation Away from Paganism? Well, it didn't take me but 35 years to write it. It really uh, began it after I left this seminary because I'm convinced that unless we do personal evangelism, personal witnessing, the job's not going to get done unless the preacher preached on today. Uh, so your thesis in this book is that we are inadequate in our involvement in evangelism. Is that right? I think that's probably a good statement. And uh, so... Um, uh, as you plan the book, uh, just give us one word about what your prognosis is. What do we need to do? Obviously, share Christ, but is there some real insight here for us to take away with us today? Well, a friend of mine used to write the end of his letters. You remember letters before email? He would put on the bottom of his letter, God's at work in the world today. And I believe he is. And I believe there are people out there waiting for somebody to come tell them the truth that we heard in this sermon moment ago and I think it's up to us to do it and I think we can do it and I did it not as good as I'd like to have done it but there's a lot of little vignettes in there to illustrate what I'm talking about and can I say to you uh, Brother Tisdale thank you for doing this thank you for making it available free of charge to our students because we're serious about evangelism Amen. here would you tell him thank you and be sure to pick up this book thank you very much now um you know that the day cannot end without one final note that might be a little unpleasant. I don't mean it to be, but I want to tell you something, and I want you to tell any students that are not here that I said this, okay? Here is what we have. We had an incident on campus yesterday. Uh, a man who was apparently on something was running from police officers. He darted onto the gate, left his vehicle, and came darting onto the campus and uh, into the men's dormitory. And uh, a scuffle ensued there uh, involving uh, the SWAT team, uh, Fort Worth Police Department, involving our own uh, security forces. And uh, the result is that the man ran into a room which was unlocked. We don't do that. We lock our rooms when we leave. Okay. Everybody got it? That's the first thing. And he dived through a window and broke it out. That was unthoughtful of him, but he probably came out the worst for the wear in that one. And uh, was um, uh, secured by the SWAT team and taken off to be treated uh, for the injuries he had received flying through the window. And, um, and then to be incarcerated. 
Now, the two things about this I want you to know. Fort Worth Police Department was very high in their praise of our own security. The reason I'm telling you that is not only... Not only because they do a great job, but I heard unbelievably that there were three or four people who wanted to lodge complaints yesterday about something that we didn't do quite right. Now, I want to remind you where we live. We live in a bad world, and this seminary is not located out in some pasture 400 miles from any known form of sin. It's located right here in the middle of the whole business. And we're here on purpose. And so I don't want to hear any complaints. You got a complaint about something that Fort Worth Police did or that uh, uh, our security division did, you bring it to me if you're man enough to do so. Everybody got the point? Now I want to tell you one more thing. Yesterday, well, let me see if I can state this a little more positively. Whenever something's going down on this campus, as it is going to happen occasionally, I mean, we're located right here in the middle of the world. I don't ever want to hear that this is Wimpville University. We have no wimps here. If you're a wimp, transfer someplace else. If you're a man and something's going down, get in it. Right then, do what you have to do to secure the miscreant so he doesn't hurt anybody else. You say, I might get hurt. Probably. <laughs> I might be shot. Maybe. If so, we'll pray for you. But Guys, we don't stand around. When somebody is under attack, we get in on it. We thank God for the opportunity to help protect life. This is not a time to be like most campuses in this whole United States of America where everybody sits around and says, well, we're effeminate youth. And we're not going to get involved in this because we might get hurt. We're going to do what we have to do in order to see to it that the fewest number of people possible get hurt. Now, is there anybody here this morning that has a question about what I've just told you? Anybody? Yes, Okay, Tommy Cocker, come up here and translate for me because I can't, can't hear her. She has people that aren't students that come on campus to take her places and to tutor. Will there be a new protocol for visitors on campus or anything? No, we want visitors on campus. That's where they hear the gospel. So we're happy for them to come. But we expect you, if you're a young lady, to be very, very careful. Now, I'm talking to men when I'm talking about getting involved in something here. I'm not talking about young women. I want you all to be very, very careful indeed. 
because I sometimes see you walking by yourself out around the campus here. I want you to remember where you are. This is the worst place in the world you could possibly be, except if you were somewhere else. And so it's, it's, it's a bad world out there we live in, and you gotta keep that in mind and be very, very careful out there. And uh, so preferably, young ladies, don't get yourself exposed to anything that you don't need to be exposed to, but young men, stay alert and be ready to help and move in. Now, does any young man have any question about your assignment? Anybody else? I don't want that assignment. I'm a wimp. Stick your hand up right now. Let me see your hand. All right. All right. Well, that's good. I'm glad everybody understands what the assignment is. From now on, we'll have it done. What a wonderful place to live and to work where we are real men and real women, and we serve the Lord according to the way that he has called us. And thank you, Barry McCarty, for one fabulous message today. Uh, I tell you what, it's downright embarrassing to the president to have a school of preaching where all of the preachers in that school are so much better than I. It's humiliating, but it's a humility that I need, so I accept it. And uh, be sure and pick up your book back at the back. Back one generation away from paganism. Come by and tell Barry how much you appreciate him. Let's stand together and sing whatever Tom's song has chosen for us, and then you'll be dismissed. <laughs>